before there were churches that were called Baptist or Catholic or Methodist, but not before temples. Before men had come together that hammered out uh, the, the text that would become what we call the Bible. Before all the writings that were eventually assembled and gathered by theologians and religious men from all over the Western world, Unitarian and Universalist ideas existed. They were part of the discussion. They were well respected. And from as much as two centuries before the doctrines and creeds held uh, sacred by many Christian churches were ever developed. Unitarian and universalist ideas have been cited in the teachings of several highly esteemed, highly regarded, highly respected teachers of religion and theology. So why is it that there are so few of us? I mean, it seems that we're often preoccupied with how small our number are compared with other traditions. We have deep history. We have reason and tolerance and martyrs and visionaries and really creative, energizing, empowering, affirmative people in our movement and in our history, but there just don't seem to be enough of us to do the things we'd like to do. to win the battles for human rights, civil rights, and religious rights that, would that we would champion. What can we do to turn the tide and make our world and our noble cause victorious in a sea of fear? Oh, that we now had even one ten-thousandth of those people in the world who have lost their right to worship as they see fit. Who see the wishes it's so? A Reverend Barbara? No, fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we're enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. No, I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous of gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear. Such outward things dwell not within my desire. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. No faith, cuz, wish not a man from England. God's peace, I would not lose so great an honor as one man more methinks would share from me for the best hope I have. Oh, do not wish one more. Rather, proclaim it through our host, that he who hath no stomach for this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy shall be put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company who fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He who outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when the day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He who sees this day and lives old age will yearly, on the vigil, feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispin's. Then will he strip his sleeves and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. <laughs>
old men forget and all will be forgot, but he will remember with advantages the feats he did that day. Then will our names, as familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story will a good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day until the end of the world that we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he who sheds his blood with me today shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed will think themselves accursed, they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap when any speaks who fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. Have you seen my coat? It matches my hat. Hmm. I was born Miguel Cerveto Coniesu. I later in my young adulthood adopted a Latinized version of my middle name of Servetus. You today know me as Michael Servetus. I was born in Spain in 1511. Not a good time to be born in Spain. But I was a good Roman Catholic boy because in Spain at that time, that was all you could be and be grow up to be a good young man. I loved my church. I studied faithfully. I read the Bible. And as I grew a little older, I began to argue with the priests. I argued with them about how they interpreted the Bible. You see, the Catholic Church taught, and many churches today still teach, a doctrine called the Trinity, that God existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They called this idea the Trinity, and people who believed in it would later become called Trinitarians. And those who believed, as I did, that God was one, would become Unitarians. But that phrase had not been coined in my time. They taught me to read. I thought I was supposed to do it. Not exactly the safest thing to do, to read and to argue with the priests, but I was a stubborn young man, and I was convinced God three, God one, because they said there was only one God, and yet God was divided in three parts. I could not reconcile these two things. And so I wrote a book in 1531 called On the Errors of the Trinity, thinking that if I spelled my thoughts out in a logical sense, that they would read it and understand and be convinced. Now in Spain at this time in history, you, you, you couldn't say these things. It would be called a heresy. You today live peacefully beside many people of other faiths, and this is good. But in Spain, 
to say anything that did not agree with Catherine doctrine was called a heresy, you were branded a heretic, and you would either be jailed or put to death. Church law was the law. Church doctrine, the doctrine, and disagreeing with or disobeying, harshly punished. So when I published my little book, the Spanish Catholic authorities charged me with heresy. They arrested me and locked me in a cell, a cold, dank, dismal place. Still, I would not change my beliefs. I escaped twice. I moved to France, where I assumed the name of Villeneuve, became a physician and a noted cartographer and a mathematician. You would call me today a Renaissance man. There I was the first to discover and to publish the correct flow of pulmonary blood in the human body. But I still kept returning to matters of faith. It was important to me. I could not stay silent and live with my own conscience. In France in 1543, I published a book called The Restitution of Christianity. Three years later, I sent a copy of this book to a man in Geneva, a man known as John Calvin, who was a reformationist. And I thought, good, a reformationist should read this. We have much to talk about. Mm, his idea of reforming the church was not the same as mine. He was much more conservative, shall we say. I was arrested in France again, and I escaped again. When they couldn't find me to burn my real body at the stake, they burned effigies of me, little dolls, to show how displeased they were with me. Often people burn effigies as a symbolic protest when they never actually intend to kill the person, but somehow I knew those people really meant to kill me. I thought it best to leave France, I traveled to Italy. Not a bad idea at the time. I went to Switzerland after that, a nice Protestant country, thinking, once again, that I could have a dialogue with John Calvin, and that surely he would see the wisdom of my views once he understood them. I had not realized how rigidly intolerant of differing views he would be, much like the Catholic authorities in Spain. I showed up at one of Calvin's sermons, was recognized, arrested, and imprisoned. In my day, people wore robes for many things, scholars, priests, physicians. One of the last garments I wore was a robe of so coarse cloth that your skin literally could not bear the touch of it. That was part of my humiliation, you see. I was tied to the stake. My own book was strapped to my arm. Sulfur and straw was placed upon my head and green wood at my feet. It took three hours for me to pass. I don't think we need dwell on the horror of that. 
Many people over the years, thousands in fact, have been willing to lay down their lives for their beliefs and in the hope that you who followed them would not have to die for your beliefs. We hope instead that you will live for them. There is a flame in this chalice every Sunday morning in this wonderful cathedral of yours. It is the light of knowledge and truth. It's the warm of love and friendship. It's the energy that fuels you to go out and put your faith into action. But never, ever forget that this flame means more, much more. It's a constant reminder of the very real flames that consumed our martyrs. Good people of strong faith whose only crime was to disagree and ask questions. Though our bodies may have returned to ash years ago, I believe our spirits live on here, in you and in this flame. On any Sunday morning, you should politely and disrespectfully disagree with things that you hear and do, not and do not agree with. When you hear things on the news, from friends, co-workers, any place that you do not agree with, try to remember Michael Servetus. Servetus. Just one of many who tasked to give you this freedom. Treasure it and never simply assume that it will always be there. People may use many words against you. This is a Christian nation. Conveniently forgetting that you know, the forefathers didn't really foresee the founding of the state church. They may want you to say prayers in public places, not respecting those amongst you who believe differently. Do not let them do this, because this infringes your freedoms. Freedom is a muscle. It must be exercised to be kept strong. Go and live for your religion. We did not have that music then, but it does speak to my sentiment. And I agree with my previous speakers, our previous speakers that we heard about if you disagree with something, you must speak up and you must debate it. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? To disagree, to speak up. Does anybody have any ideas about that? No, you don't? Is it fun to do that? Yes, it, thank you. You're very good, yes. It is fun to do that. It is entertaining to do that. Let me tell you about my life as an entertainer, sort of, kind of. My name is Francis David, and I was born in the early 1500s in Hungary, or Transylvania. And I was born a Catholic, as everybody was in my neighborhood then. But I went to college in Germany, and in Germany at that time, the Reformation was happening, those dangerous ideas about Protestantism. I like those ideas. And when I went back home to Hungary, the Reformation was happening there too. And I agreed with many of those ideas. For example, 
the Calvinist idea that communion is not a literal thing. I like the idea that Jesus, Jesus Christ was symbolically there, not literally there in body. That appealed to me. So I became, after a while, a Lutheran and then a Calvinist. And then I even explored other things other than that. I always did all my life and I spoke about it and I became a Unitarian. And when the king got together the religious leaders of the time to talk about the differences and the fractions and the schisms that were not getting better, they were getting worse. The king was worried about the health of his kingdom. He gathered them together and I was invited to participate. And we passed an edict that made religious tolerance the law of the land. So there was more religious diversity than any other place in Europe at that time, in Hungary. Unitarians, Calvinists, Lutherans, Catholics, all existed peacefully together. Together, for a while. Then that king died, and the new king was Catholic, not quite so tolerant, and things changed. But I did not stop speaking. I did not stop thinking about God and about religious issues like predestination, how to worship Jesus, God being one. I always believed God is one and unified. A friend of mine, a friend of mine that was brought together to that same conference to discuss, to discuss the schisms, we began to debate together publicly these issues. And let me tell you something, these debates, they were the most popular things in the land at that time. They were like rock concerts. They were like Broadway hits. They were big popular tickets to go to. People would come from miles around to hear us debate. To hear us debate was a lot of fun. But after a while, my friend, he became worried about the health of the church. He wanted to make the church strong and popular, and so he wanted to move it in a conservative direction to appeal to those who were more conservative, more traditional. And so he reported me to the new king as a heretic. And yes, I too did not have a happy ending like the previous speaker. I was thrown into the palace dungeon, and I spent the rest of my days there and died there. That is my story. But I do want you to remember that to debate issues publicly, to tell people what you think, that can be a very entertaining, popular thing. Thank you for listening to my story. I am Francis David. Thank you. Good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is James Reeb. I was born in 1927. My mother was a homemaker. My father worked for the Bridgeport Machine Company. We moved around a lot. Really moved around a lot in a lot of different ways. My parents were very devout Christians. I cannot remember a time when I was not in Sunday school 
nor studying the Bible from childhood. But because we moved so much, like many of the people you've heard before, we attended a lot of different churches. We had a lot of different ideas. So my youth was spent looking at a lot of different ways to worship God and the divine. This really stuck with me. And as I entered high school, I realized that the ministry was my calling. And so the age of 18, although I did not have to when I graduated high school, I joined the army. This was in the closing days of World War II. I served about 18 months, was honorably discharged. I was a clerk. But even at that point, I knew that I wanted to be a minister, a Presbyterian minister. And so I began the process of attending college at Casper Community College in Casper, Wyoming, but then moving on <clears throat> to St. Olaf's College, which is a Lutheran seminary. In 1953, soon after graduation, I was ordained, and I also married Marie. Marie was a girl I'd known since high school that I had uh, met in Casper, Wyoming. And I began my Presbyterian ministry. But all was not fully at peace within me. In 1957, a friend of mine gave me a book called Today's Children and Yesterday's Heritage. And it began to reinforce many ideas that had already begun to brew within me. And I realized that I was no longer a Presbyterian. That year, 57, I resigned my Presbyterian ministry. And instead, I petitioned the Unitar Unitarian, American Unitarian Association via chapter. I will state in good Unitarian style, it took them five years to fully ordain me as a Unitarian minister. In the interim, I took a job at the YMCA in Washington, DC. Throughout my time as a Presbyterian, I'd been very much more interested in helping the poor. I'd done work as a chaplain more than as a preacher. That gave me a different perspective on the way things were than my upbringing as a fairly comfortable middle-class white male. And I began to see the world a little bit differently. And this being the late 50s and early 60s, things were stirring in America. <clears throat> When I became ordained as a Unitarian minister, I wanted a diverse church. I wanted a racially diverse church. I wanted somewhere that I could make a difference. There was no church available that was looking for a minister that met what I wanted, because I wanted to make a difference. So instead of taking a congregation, I began working for the American Friends Service Committee in Boston, which I began in 1964. Immediately upon moving to Boston, my wife and now three children, one on the way, but a large Victorian home in a predominantly black neighborhood because it was my strongest conviction that there was no way to help the African-American community by living comfortably in an all-white community. I stayed engaged with the UUA ministry. On March 7th, in 1965, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., with a group of 500 marchers, attempted to march from Selma, Alabama, to Birmingham. Along the way, they were attacked 
by state troopers. Many people were injured. That evening, he sent out a telegram to the Unitarian, Uni <clears throat> Unitarian Universal Association asking for any ministers or lay people who would be willing to come show their support against the very strong objections of my wife. I answered that call. I flew down to Alabama. And on March 9th, 1965, a group of 2,500 of us again attempted to march from Selma to Birmingham, Alabama. And we were yet again blocked by state troopers and turned back. There was no violence at that time. We went back to the chapel. And we had an evening of speeches, communion, song. Afterwards, me and uh, two other Unitarian ministers who had been there, or Orloff Miller and Clark, <clears throat> excuse me, Clark Olson, decided with many of else that we wanted to get something to eat. We went to Walker's Cafe, which was an African-American-owned business and also the only business in Selma that would feed any of us. I'd intended to fly home that evening, but I called my wife from Walker's Cafe and told her that I would be staying one more day. We were going to attempt to march yet again the next morning to finally get to Birmingham. At the end of our meal, we paid our tab. I'm done speaking with my wife. And Orloff and Clark and I decided that uh, we were going to walk home. Everyone else had taken cars, and they drove off. And uh, being a little unfamiliar with Selma, Alabama, we got turned around. And we went from being in a predominantly black neighborhood to a predominantly white neighborhood. We were very well known in Selma that day. As the three of us passed in front of a place called the Silver Moon Cafe, we were greeted with the call of, hey, niggas, you, niggas. We tried to ignore them. We heard the footsteps come. Those were some of the last words I heard on this earth. Four men beset the three of us with clubs. I was almost immediately struck in the head and received a fractured skull. My friends attempted to defend themselves, took defensive postures, curled up on the ground. The men beat us till they felt they were done and they ran off. The white hospital would not treat me. So I was taken to the predominantly black hospital in Selma where it was very, very quickly determined that I needed to see a neurologist immediately. They got a hearse and attempted to get me to Birmingham, which is the closest place that there would be a neurologist. It got a flat tire, had to turn back on the rim. It was beset around by a mob who knew that I was in there, so they could not change the tire. Needless to say, it was over 90 minutes before they got me to Birmingham and a neurologist. There was little to nothing that could be done. And two days later, <clears throat> at the age of 38, all life support was turned off, and I died. By the good graces of the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, my wife, now widow, was at my side. He personally flew her from Boston to be with me in the hospital. He also called my father. 
to get, offer his condolences. Lyndon Johnson would later reference my name in his famous We Shall Overcome speech when he advocated for the signing of the Voting Rights Act, which was signed into law on August 6th. Much of the wave of support coming to that from the violent and brutal death that I experienced at the hands of people who would never see trial. If anything, the greatest tragedy, I believe, is that it took the death of a white minister to get the attention of a nation, because many had died before me whose names we do not know. This is our legacy, myself and those who came before. They have, we have all paid the ultimate price for what we believe. This is not an easy faith, and there are many who stand against us. Each of these men, from among our many numerous noteworthy Unitarians, Universalists, and Unitarian Universalist forebearers, ultimately died for the principles and causes they held worthy and sacred. I do not wish to suggest that we must go out and die for our church. But let us not fool ourselves into thinking that the things that they died for are privileges that can't be taken away. They need to be defended even now. Let us mindfully, intentionally decide, discern, discover what we truly value what is worth living for? And if it came down to it, what would we die for? Hillel the Elder, from the Hebrew tradition, says, If I am not for myself, who will be for me? And when I am myself, if when I am for myself, who am I? What am I? And if not now, when? From another non-Unitarian Universalist, Abraham Lincoln. With malice toward none and charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. <clears throat> 